Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. My next guest is an inspiring sales leader, an avid campaigner for diversity in sales. He recently led the launch of Outreach in EMEA and is now leading Sales for Hook, an exciting UK startup focused on helping SaaS companies maximise revenue to renewal performance. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Tom Castley. Good morning and thank you for having me. It's great to um, have you here. We've got a lot to catch up on. I know there's been some changes in your life. There's changes in the political, economic world. There's so (laughs) much for us to talk about, really. So, but first, tell me more about Hook, the revenue growth platform. It says it's built by experts. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, a little bit about Hook first is, personally, I'm a little bit sick and tired of of the amount of effort, the amount of technology that goes into the lead to revenue kind of angle. And I think the next panacea for everybody is the revenue to renewal. So that post-sales world. And in terms of being built by experts, Faraz, our CEO, stumbled into head of customer success at AppDynamics, just as they were acquired by Cisco, And having come from a data kind of side of the world, decided that actually running this renewals and expansion business is too many calories we're burning. I'm going to apply data to it. And it cost him about $4 million of Cisco's money to fix that. And then realized, right, now we know whether somebody's kind of in a good space or not. I now need to help people understand what to do to fix that. And thought, I'm going to spend another $4 million of Cisco's money. (laughs) I can't be unique in this. So that was the kind of the eureka moment when he said, I'm going to build a business that does this at scale for everybody else. Wow. It's nice being able to spend other people's money like that, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if it was just of that time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The takeaway from that is fixing this problem. It's a tough problem. And lots of organizations are starting from a very insecure kind of platform where, you know, in today's environment, most SaaS companies know more about their prospects than they do about their customers. Uh, And that's just not right. And it sounds crazy, really. You would think that, you know, in a SaaS environment, they're a lot closer to their customers. They have to be. They should be. Mm. But you're telling me that that's not necessarily the case. And you think, well, what's going on there? Well, look at leadership. There's a piece of research done uh, about a year ago that Anna, rather than survey, surprise, surprise, don't necessarily tell the truth in a survey. They looked at about 25,000 blog posts by C-level executives in, in software companies. And when they analyzed what they were talking about, 73% of those blog posts were on acquisition. 
And yet the majority of every SaaS company's revenue is in its customers. Why are we still so myopically focused on grabbing more people into the business when it's two to four times more effective to grow revenue from your existing customers than it is from new customers? And I see, again, macroeconomics is going to change us for the better. Uh, I always think when you kind of when you put somebody under pressure, what does pressure do? It either creates diamonds or burst pipes. And in this environment, we're going to move from this kind of growth at all costs and spending money like it's free to responsible growth, and we'll have better companies out the back of it. Yeah, yeah. Scale your sales framework. The uh, the first pinnacle of of it is retention and mm. you know i've talked a lot about retaining your customers you can more or less depending on your company and the dynamics but you can double your revenue just by looking after your customers and your customers become your best sales team as well mm. they recommend other people to you shorter sales it just makes sense and you think this is not rocket science, really. Why is it that we're not doing it? And I have a bit of a theory I'd like to run by you. And oh. that the way sales people have been trained in the past, it's all focused on acquisition. The way that we measure sales, the whole focus. So there's something wrong in the system that's always been front loaded, always focused on that. So what can we do in the way that we train our salespeople, the way that we organize our systems to move the focus away from the net new logos to nurturing our existing customers? Oh, that's a, that's a question to unpack. Uh, <laughs> and just kind of the, the opening comment would be it's always you kind of looked at uh, hunters and farmers, you know, hunters being the new business rep farmers being the the account management the growth reps even the way that they're described emotionally it sounds far more appealing to be a hunter rather than a farmer and organizations will celebrate you know a, a new customer coming into the organization way more than they would celebrate a renewal or indeed an expansion and so first and foremost i think organizations need to work out where the recognition lies, you know, how are we holding up and building up those people in the business want to attract talent into both sides of that equation. But I think the answer to the question, to some extent, is the problem is created in the beginning. I was talking to somebody the other day who said, our biggest problem is we're now acquiring the wrong customers. What they've done is they've put so much emphasis on acquisition that when the crops are running a bit dry, when there's not the opportunities out there, guess what salespeople will do? What salespeople do, they'll just grab anybody and bring them in, not realizing that actually that becomes a, a bit of a virus inside the business. There's a drain on resources and so on and so forth. I would like to see a time where customer success has a seat at the table that is influential enough that they can define who it is that we should be acquiring as a customer because the growth mechanics that will come out of that will drive kind of the success that organizations are heading. Stephen Covey has that famous quote, doesn't he? Start with the end in mind. I think yeah. customer success know what the end looked like. So can they inform the start so that this doesn't have to be an exploration? It actually becomes a flywheel effect 
where organizations just get better at the process. I think that's an excellent point. When we think about the ideal customer profile and the buyer persona, who creates all of that marketing? How much relationship really does marketing have? I mean, real relationship with the customer. And actually, the people that ought to be designing that should be customer success because they know what great looks like. They're dealing with Mm. it every day. They know what the customer problems, they know the customer language really well. So I think that's a really, really interesting dynamic that the wrong people are creating those kind of personas of what great is. It's literally, you know, is handing you food that's already gone off. You've got, if you're acquiring the wrong customers, by the time they've gone live, you will have extended your your CAC to lifetime value ratio. And then if they don't renew it, let's say your your CAC is like 18 months, Mm. and then they don't renew at 12 months, you've effectively paid somebody to be your customer and... They leave unhappy, so they'll make sure nobody else becomes your customer. And this nonsensical, kind of non-holistic view of the world just doesn't seem right. And so, actually, I welcome the kind of pressure that we find ourselves under. And I'm very hopeful that organizations will start to look at that a little bit more responsibly. And, And maybe even look at slightly different metrics, like, you know, things like, time to first expansion the uh, the amount of the lifetime value of a customer that they acquire in that first transaction to balance out the potential for that customer to see value within the first say you know six months of a contract so that then they're thinking about the renewal as being not something they have to do because the cost to change is so high i wonder how many organizations make that decision There was a piece of research recently that said that 43% of companies consider not renewing software that they're entirely happy with. That renewals just happen and they don't need to be worked is just nonsense. Yeah. So I'd like to delve in a bit deeper into at Hook and how it kind of automates, predicts the how future customers will behave and how they can take action from that. Explain all of that to me. Well, if you subscribe to the idea that it's a, we only sell to B2B SaaS, and to my mind, every B2B SaaS company tastes like chicken. There's, there's not that much difference between them in terms of how they should operate, how they should go to market, what have you. So what Hook does is effectively watch every customer from inception through to expansion, then through to renewal. And... We look at that data and we look at all the companies that do renew really well and don't burn a lot of resources. We look at the ones that don't renew. And down in the detail of that data, uh, like the mouse click level and the login level and every meeting we have, there there are patterns that data science can see. There's there's too much data for us to analyze, even in reports. You kind of need to dig in with, with, with technology to do that. And when you look at those, you can then start to see traits very early in the process that highlight an intent to churn or the potential for expansion. And what we do is we we create an index, a renewal and expansion index that allows you then to plot a company uh, on a graph that says, well, if they're highly engaged and there's a lot of potential, that's a growth account. If they're highly engaged, uh, sorry, they're not highly engaged, 
and there's a lot of growth, then guess what? We need to invest some resources in that, invest to grow that account, and so on and so forth as you go through that matrix. Interesting. There's something that you mentioned before, and I wanted to kind of run another theory by you, Tom. Customer experience. One thing that I believe we don't focus enough on is the buyer experience. And if we focus well on buyer experience, that leads into the customer experience. It The relationships we build up with our customers and our buyers is really at the very beginning. And that informs how well customer service is going to be able to bed them in. But customer yeah. service doesn't have a hand in that process at the beginning so what can we do in our systems to ensure that we not only measure the buyer's experience but take it seriously knowing that that's going to have an impact on our renewals did you ever see that cartoon i forget who the guy was who drew it it kind of had you know what sales sold what professional services delivered you know what what was what was consumed and what the customer actually wanted. And it was a picture of a, a swing on a, on a tree. Yeah. And, you know, the, the picture just changes as you kind of go through that journey. And, and of course, what sales sold has nothing to do with what the customer actually wanted. I would suggest that many organizations don't actually understand why a customer bought their platform. They never actually found out. It was despite the company the customer actually bought the solution because they were never even given the chance to communicate that. So the first thing that I, I'm a strong advocate for is actually creating a hypothesis, a North Star that's in their language. And I, and I have a framework for that, which I copied a bit and have kind of developed a bit. So Mark Cosiglo kind of came up with the idea originally, which is XABC. And so A is we can't do this, is typically a, a recognition of a problem. B is, which means we can't do that, which is typically the executive initiative. C is, and it's costing us or it's impacting us by this, so it's quantified. And X at the beginning, but you tend to find it out last, is despite doing this, this, and this, so trying this way and this way, which ends up creating a slide that will say, you know, despite doing this, we can't do this, which means we can't get that, and it's costing us this. And if you can anchor all of your communications around that, not only would we facilitate a discovery process that's anchored in the customer's language that helps to align our product and our service to this ultimate goal that they have, we should be able to hand that off to the next stage in the process, onboarding, and then into customer success. And they should be using that hypothesis as their first slide in every presentation they give. And as it evolves, which it naturally will do because elements will get fixed, it's just center them around, themselves around that. And I'm a huge fan of clarity and alignment. The hypothesis gives us clarity. And every time we communicate it, it enforces an alignment conversation. When you're aligned with a customer and you're listening and they're using your language, I tend to find that their experience is a lot better. Mm. So is it at the discovery stage that you start to form this hypothesis? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and throughout the sales cycle. The other beauty of a hypothesis is when it's in a customer's language, they can correct you. As you were just saying about that presentation you listened to the other day, it was in their language, not in yours. 
So you found yourself this, this incredibly enigmatic, clever economist on stage talking about some fanciful stuff, a bit like a rep who's in love with their own product. <laughs> uh, and there you are in the audience going, I'm not sure how this relates to me. Uh, somebody else might understand it. But given that people buy in teams now, there you were in an audience. Imagine the customers who are in their teams and somebody's not willing to stick their hand up and say, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. But guess what? When it comes to making a decision, what do they do? No, because they don't actually understand the implications. The benefit of having a hypothesis in the customer's language is guess what? It's their language. They understand it. And if it's not quite right, the tendency will be for them to work with you on and improving it. Because if you've built a great hypothesis, you've actually probably solved one of their first problems. How do I describe my challenge, my issue that I'm facing in a way that the executives in my business will understand and can sponsor? Guess what? Executives love a hypothesis. And then this translates to the storytelling within the business. That's, you mm. know, that's how they continue to kind of champion this why. Yes. I have an interview question that I ask every salesperson and SDR that I hire, which is, you'll be passionate about something. I'd like you to teach me about it, but teach me in a way that I can teach it to others. Far too often, salespeople develop a storytelling technique, but only at, a, at an elementary level, in a way that they can tell a story that resonates with the individual, but they don't tell it in a way that that person can take that story and tell it to others. Still today, and more so now we're remote, the phenomenal salespeople are great at telling stories in a way that somebody else, when they're not in the room, is telling the story as well as they do. And for me, a lot of that's based around value. And I grade reps on that. A C-grade rep will stop selling value when they can justify the list price. Mm -hmm. A B-grade rep will stop selling value when they think the customer can justify the list price. An A-grade rep will stop selling value when the customer doesn't care what the price is. Wow. And an A-star rep stops selling value when the customer can tell everybody else in their business why they shouldn't care what the cost is. And the only way to get to that level is to have vision lock and to have given them a story that they've been able to develop and to take into the business that has power, momentum, and is probably centered around a hypothesis. Wow. Love that. So much great value for people to leverage here. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to listen to this again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change it up a bit because I know we've had lots of conversation on this subject and this is about diversity in sales and whether you think it's progressed and, and what you're doing in your role and what you think the whole industry needs to, to start doing if you see it as an issue. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and, and I'm slightly tougher on myself now, Janice, having kind of worked exclusively, I guess, on trying to improve diversity in, ten, in terms of gender and you know, when I when I left Outreach, we were about 
Uh, so 50% female in the office and 50% female in the leadership team locally. And and guess what? That wasn't just unique to Europe. We had, you know, 50% in leadership globally. And across the business, I think we we're around about 35, 40% in terms of that diversity. I'm now starting to look at things like cognitive diversity, looking at elements, other effectively non-legal requirements around diversity, just trying to push the envelope. And look, I'm self-serving in this regard to some extent in that, you know, diverse teams do perform better. The reason why I lent so heavily in, into the women's side of things was, yeah, multiple reasons. Uh, so first and foremost, when I was at Exactly, which was a tool for sales commissions and calculating that, I was there when the gender pay legislation was coming out and I got very vocal about that. And when we started digging into the big data, not only did we see pay disparity, but here's in sales, guess what? My job is to deliver the biggest number possible. What we found when we looked at the data was that female salespeople stay longer. They uh, perform better against quota. Sadly, they were paid less by about 5%. And they, teams led by female sales leaders perform outperform teams led by men by 3 to 4%. Once you know that, you can't unknow it. So if I'm leading an organization, why on earth would I not do everything I can to try and fix that? And if you don't have stamina today to do that, you'll give up because actually in sales is a progressive industry and in that, you know, you tend to start in the junior roles and progress your way through to more senior roles. Well, wind the clock back 10 years, there were very few women coming into sales. So if you're trying to hire senior female sales reps, guess what? They're few and far between. They're awesome. And you'll you know, you'll pay a premium for that. But they also take the best jobs and, and what have you. And so they should because they're awesome. They've managed to survive in what was a very male-dominated environment. So the approach I was able to take at Outreach was just grab people at the beginning of their journey. So I worked with a lady called Kat, a HR contractor to rewrite all of our job descriptions, rewrite our interview processes, to make them far more accessible, not just to women, but also from other diverse backgrounds as well. And uh, do you know what? Suddenly, I just had this impouring of candidates. It wasn't difficult. And then when we hired them and we coached them and we nurtured them, Guess what? I, it wasn't like, you know, women did better than men. Actually, everybody did better as a result through this diversity that we had in the teams. The balance just suddenly like took off. And to the extent to which actually, you know, out of the seven SDRs that we promoted, five women, two men into sales roles, six of them went to President's Club in the first year. That level of attainment, that kind of, that just doesn't happen normally. So, my advice and my guidance to everybody is if you want to try and build diversity into a team, rather than starting at the end of the career and say, oh, we want to hire a diverse set of sales reps. If you can't find them, then sow the seeds and build it from the bottom up. And, you know, it doesn't take 15 years to become a top rep anymore. You know, they're doing it in three or four years. You know, within a blink of an eye, you will have that throughout your entire sales team. And I must say, whenever I went into the outreach office, it just made me smile. It was heaving with really engaged and talented people, diverse people. And, and it was 
so unique to some of the teams that I'm going in and, and working in that it was like, I couldn't believe but did, it. I but didn't I it have a great feel heaven. to it as well? Yeah. It was like, it, it just felt right. It was, yeah. it was like community. It was balanced. Yes. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't missing, you know, key ingredients. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And I, I thank you for showing that example. that It is doable. And as you say, you know, to get that top team, it only takes 10 years of like sowing, not 10 years, a few years of sowing the seeds, but you've got to have intention yeah, mm. and be committed to doing it. So that's a, a great example. OK, if you're on a desert island, mm. what would be the one thing you took with you, Tom? Hopefully it's bigger than the football pits because I'd like to take my bike. <laughs> <laughs> I got into riding a bike during COVID. But so we're told to stay off the trains and I had to go into London because we were buying a new office. So I rode my mountain bike into London. And I remember speaking to my wife when I got there. I said, do you know what? I haven't done that much exercise. I've still got it. Totally fit. This is brilliant, by that. And then an hour and three quarters into my ride home, my wife phoned me up. It's like, where, where on earth are you? And I was nearly in tears. I'm like, I'm a lot further from home than I want to be. And I think I'm going to chuck this bike in a ditch and get an Uber or something. I hadn't realized that it's slight from my house in Hartford, slightly downhill into London. And I'd had a tailwind. So on the way back, I was uphill and, and into a headwind. And I wasn't quite as fit as I thought I was. But, you know, I haven't looked back and I just love my time out on a bike. It's active relaxation, which is a great way to turn off kind of a committed mind. And, you know, fresh air, you get to see cracking countryside and what have you. So I'd, I would ride my bike around that desert island merrily, taking in the fresh air and the exercise. Well, I'm going to make sure that you've got a big desert island and then you've yeah. got the terrain to ride your bike as well. But can you imagine you'll be discovering all of these new areas and picking up your food as you, as you go as well. So I'm sure you'll go. be a very happy man riding yeah. around your, your island for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got it. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and I will thank you for, you know, your setting an example of what sales leadership should be. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to know you and, and thank you so much for being a guest on Scale Your Sales podcast, Tom. Yeah, thank you for having me and, and continue to be a great advocate for our industry and for everybody who works in it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.